Hi, Peter Walker here and welcome to today's edition of The Transition Guy. Now joining me today in the studio is Shinobu Hindert, author of Investing is Your Superpower. Now I take it I got that right. Yes. Great. Yes, you nailed it. <laughs> no, there's nothing worse than getting it wrong. It's not a great way to start off a podcast. Well, welcome <laughs> to today's episode. Great to have Thank you on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I suppose one of the reasons why we thought you'd make a great guest today is because you you look at it out there, the news is dominated by money. The news is dominated by the cost of living crisis. I mean, in the UK, especially, not sure what it's like in the States. They're saying that we're having the worst cost of living crisis that on record. Wow. Things are that tough. And I'm getting the feeling that with all that, and it is true stuff that they're saying in the press, really, it's a harsh reality. But if we're not careful, there's going to be this negative connotation around money. And actually, more than ever, we should be very money aware now, more than we've ever been. Yeah. So could you, so I suppose my first question for you today would be, can you explain the basics of financial planning and why it's really important for individuals at any stage in life? Because you deal with a- Yeah, financial planning. Your demographic is quite wide ranging. Yeah, I so I worked as a financial advisor for over a decade and was managing at one point a book of um, client assets over 350 million. So I saw so many different scenarios. I saw people that were always high income earners, always had a lot of money, maybe big spenders wanted to do that. I had people that saved worked so hard because they didn't come from anything and they saved and they saved and they had this money and then they wanted to make sure that they were doing the right things with it. And then um, you see younger people maybe in the tech world that could just quickly came into money. So I saw so many different scenarios, even in terms of tax planning, estate planning, that kind of thing. But you know, one saying that I, I stick with because it it's kind of hits hard is that people don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. And it's so true whether you're in business or you're looking at your finances. A lot of people that I meet you know, when they're maybe get some time with me one-on-one, -on -one, they're like, listen, I've been winging it. You know, I don't really have a plan. Things have kind of worked out a little bit. I think I could be doing them better, or maybe they haven't been working out and I don't have a plan because I don't think that I qualify, you know, that kind of thing. So there is this self-talk that I don't have enough to financially plan or I, you know, have debt, so I can't do it. And none of that's true. It's just kind of mapping out your life and really understanding the balance between how much you should be saving, how much you should be spending. Look to the future. We we have to live for today, of course. We don't want to, um, you know, never leave our house and never spend any money and be very rich, but have no friends. <laughs> so there is a balance of doing it, but it is important because Things move very quickly. And the, the biggest advantage that you have when you're investing is time. You can take advantage of compounding interest, having your money grow over time. So even if you're thinking, I don't have enough, that's the wrong language. You just want to create, sit down, create a plan. The first thing you want to start with is just writing down what are your goals? What goals do you have in your life? And they don't have to necessarily be tied to money. Just writing them down will help you figure out, okay, now that I have 
eight different things I want to accomplish in my life or over the next 15 years, I have this big picture. Well, how do I back into those? What are the steps that I need to get there? And then you can piecemeal it together. But it is, it's really important to make sure that you're not only living for today, but planning for tomorrow and vice versa. And do you think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is that lack of planning? Yeah, lack of planning, lack of getting started. You know, I, I think people are telling themselves, I'll do it when I have more money. And oftentimes when you do get a raise, even if it's significant, your your next move is, oh, good, I can get out of this crappy apartment, you know, and then or it's like, I really needed a new car. I've been waiting to get this new car. I'm going to purchase this this car because you've had a goal and you've been waiting for it. So it's not it doesn't go hand in hand that you make more money, you save more money. Um, and, and oftentimes we kind of set our lives up around the income that we make. So if you have a couple, they're both income earning income. They buy a home and then now one person loses their job. Maybe they can't afford the mortgage payments just with one person working. So just because we make more money doesn't mean we're saving more. So my, my point is just to get started now, even if it's a nominal amount, because you want to get into the habit, the practice of putting money away for yourself, investing. So that way you're also paying attention to what's going on in the news, what's happening with what impact is that on my investments. You want to get to know yourself as an investor as well. Oh, thank you. What are some of the common mistakes people make when it comes to financial planning and how can they avoid it? Mistakes, I think, is the number one mistake going at it alone. You know, I, I kind of look at it like if you're going to a foreign country, you've never been there before, you can go on TripAdvisor, you can buy all the travel books you want. But if someone said, hey, I have a really great friend that's actually from there, it lives there now he's happy to meet up with you and can show you around for a couple of days. What would you rather do, right? You can kind of fumble on your own. Maybe you don't speak the language and you'll figure it out. Or you can take, you know, go with someone who knows the area. You actually get this guide that's going to be helping you along the way. And that's really how I look at it with financial planning as well. You, There are enough tools out there that you could go at it alone. However, why would you want to if you can partner with a professional that can just show you like, that's not a good place to go. That's not a good area for you to be in. Just navigate through that. So the biggest one is don't go at it alone. Um, second mistake is I think listening to other people that are not professionals. So I think when you do start to talk about this, whether it's at work or in your neighborhood or with some friends is it could even be family. They have strong opinions about these, um, maybe it's investments or maybe it's wh where you're saving your money. And then if you listen and take action from that, you just want to make sure you're doing your due diligence as well. Because people often um, are very quick to tell you when they had a very successful investment, right? And they're just like, I know everything about investing. Let me tell you what I did. But then they don't share their mistakes. So they don't kind of full circle that and say, well, one time I went in on this you know, stock that I really loved, it didn't perform well, and I lost X amount of money. So they're kind of just sharing the highlights. Um, so then it could be misleading. So if you're following what somebody else is doing, that that could be misleading. Um, and the, the third mistake that people make is really not uh, being forward looking enough. So we are emotional beings, we're human, we're not robots, even though there's a strategy in place, it's sometimes very difficult for us to separate our emotions from what we are hearing in the news and 
what we, these gut feelings that we have that we're like, oh, this is just not going to work out. I should sell all my investments. And you may be able to guess when the market's going to crash or, or really take a turn. But what you is very difficult to do is to buy back in at the bottom, right? That is a very difficult thing to do. As much as, uh, you know, we can anticipate, okay, we think the market's going to go down. If you miss those huge upswings in the market, you know, let's say you miss the three biggest day of the year, that might be the total returns that the market sees for the whole year. And you've missed them, even though you were invested the other time. So um, to really be understanding how you are as an investor, understanding your emotions and having a plan. If you've made knee-jerk reactions in the past, you could just say, if this happens again, here's my plan. Step one, reach out to a professional. Step two, review all of my goals, my financial situation. Is this still online? Number three, make sure I understand the big picture. And if you go through all of those and you still need to make a change, then it's an appropriate change. But you don't want to be quickly you know, making changes just based on how you're feeling because the market doesn't care how we feel. <laughs> so why do you think people don't go to the professionals in the first place? Well, the, the industry's changed. So I started in this industry maybe 15, 17 years ago. And at the time, at least in the US, you had to call somebody to place orders in your account and you had to have a conversation and then you probably were charged some fees. So there was these kind of barriers that you had to get into the industry or get into uh, investing in the first place. And a lot of those places, they might have minimums, account minimums, account fees, um, investment minimums trading fees. So it really was for people that had already built some wealth and everything's changed. Technology has changed that completely. We've kind of um, what they've called democratized investing, making it more accessible to everyone. So a lot of companies now, there are no account minimums. There's no investment minimums. They got rid of trading fees. It's accessible to everyone. So, but just because that's laid out doesn't mean everybody knows that. And we have to undo the thinking of this is only reserved for these other people. So it's accessible now. Um, it just hasn't been in the past. So that that's why I think people just don't know it's available or don't know how to get access it. So they basically still have the stigma around it and the thought process it's only for the rich. Yeah. Yeah. And and quite frankly, in my you know previous life as a financial advisor or planner, it, it is, right? Because we're in, financial advisors don't get paid like attorneys do, where it's you talk to them for an hour, you get a bill. You they return a voicemail, you get a bill. They write you an email, you get a bill. You don't get that with a financial planner. They're not paid out that way. Typically, what happens is there are paid based on the assets that you have under management with them. And then you're charged, you know, a percent, something like that. So if you don't have assets to be managed, they can't help you. It's not that they don't want to, but their fee structure is not set up in a way where they're not a nonprofit. They can't sit with people for hours and hours and hours and not get compensated. So it's really the structure of how it works. There's other ways to access advisors. I offer um, education. You could educate yourself, kind of go at it a little bit alone until you want to hire somebody to do that. You can hire other planners and pay them a fee. So it's just the industry is changing and we had kind of have to just spread the word about how people can access this help and from what you're saying it's in a financial planner's best interest to help the client succeed because the more money they have under management the better it is for the financial planner long term 
Yeah. And then referrals, you know, if you do a great job, that's where a lot of people make their business is you have a good experience with them. You tell somebody else and then they tell somebody else. So yeah, it is in their best interest to do that. And then they don't have to go find a new client and market and do all of that. So absolutely. So how should someone start their financial planning journey, especially if they have limited knowledge or experience in the area? The first thing I would do is just be very transparent with yourself on how much money you're making, how much money you're spending. What does your debt look like? Organize your debt by interest rate payments. Organize it by the payoff dates. You know, really just understand your financial picture of what you're working with and see what are the expenses that I have that I cannot live without? What are certain things that okay, I, I do want to spend this um, on, you know, one of the things here that I see often is people spend a lot of money on going out to eat and it could just be ordering in. And any financial planner could say, oh, you're spending too much money on food and you got to cut it back. But it depends on your lifestyle because some people work, you know, more than 40 hours a week. And for them to actually go home and cook, it will burn them out and drain them. So it's kind of a lifestyle thing of, I need these quick, easy access to these meals because it keeps me sane mm -hmm. and we can't put a price tag on that. You know, so there, there's gotta be certain things that some people even will at age of retirement. And we're like, okay, now that you're heading into retirement, you need to cut back on all of these expenses. And they're like, I don't want to, I'd rather keep working for a couple more years. I like to travel. I like these nice handbags. I just want to do what I want to do. And I'll wait a couple more years until I don't really want to work anymore. And then I'll make those cuts. So I think just being aware of your situation would be the first place to start. And once you have that awareness, oftentimes people get overwhelmed. They're looking at it and they're like, oh my gosh, what is this? You don't have to do anything with that information yet. You're really just collecting that. And then the next thing would be, you know, how much money could I afford to comfortably save? And then once you start saving that money, see if in six months you could increase it. And then, then you're looking at, well, now I need to get invested. So don't try to do everything at once. If you're thinking I got to get invested and you're looking at all your finances, you're like, oh, I have debt. And now you're shaming yourself. You feel bad about it. You don't know what to do. That is, you're doing it wrong. It's not supposed to be that serious. Um, you'll tackle it kind of one step, one step at a time. Okay, that's a really valid set of points. How can individuals strike a balance between the short-term financial goals, like saving for a vacation and long-term goals, like you mentioned earlier, retirement? Yeah, I think that you have to just sit down with yourself or if you're planning with a partner and talk about it because any financial planner, especially with my background, I'm always going to say you need to save more for later, right? It's like you got to, because you're going to live till 140 and you're going to run out of money and it's like, you got to save this. However, I've had family members that have lost their parents at a young age. And when I have the conversations with them, they're like, but you could die at any point. And it's like, that's true. That's true. You could, you know, we have to, we have to balance that. So I think doing it with intention and not as a sacrifice that you're not sacrificing tomorrow so you can live today, but you're not um, forgetting about retirement altogether. So I think, you know, the rule of thumb for retirement is to save about, um, you know, 10%, 15% per year. So just see where you're at. What are you saving on? And then are there alternatives for some vacations that maybe aren't so expensive? 
I mean, you've had personal experience of death at a very early age yourself, haven't you? I haven't. My father did. So he lost his mother, um, I think, before he was five. And then he lost his father when he was a teenager. And I think for him, he struggled um, pretty, pretty early on because him and my mom got together. They had kids young. So he never had money, you know, savings as as a young adult. So he was always telling me, start your family later. I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm a burden. <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding. Um, but it was these, these conversations because he had so much financial stress at an early age that he had to navigate. So I think for him, it was, he was more in the line of like, let's save money to, to do this. Um, well, I guess even, even my mom as well, where, you know, those, those life experiences are going to give you a bias in one direction or another. So I think also recognizing that. And what's also interesting is when you're planning with a partner, you know, sometimes the other partner has a health condition that they might be saying, okay, you might live a really long life, but I'm not going to live a really long life. And I want to make sure that I'm doing these. So you really have to strike a balance with each other as well and dig into why you're making these decisions. If it's impulsive and you're spending a lot of money that you don't necessarily have, like if you have to put it on a credit card and then you're like, okay, in 12 months, we'll pay it off. Maybe pause a little bit and see, well, why don't we just save the money? And after 12 months, we can pay for it in, in cash and we don't have to put it on a credit card, something like that. But just to think about those things, um, you know, they're driving vacations, that kind of thing. Well, especially today with the interest rates, on a continued rise is probably access to money is no longer as cheap as it has been in the past. Yeah. Even driving vacations, you know, all of these you're really budgeting for. And I think even creating a budget for the whole year. So I have an account that's just, you know, cash in there, but it's called our vacation account. We put money in there and then every year we're like, there's no way we're going to spend that money. And then, you know, by August it's gone. And, and it's, it's a good reality check of like, we are actually spending a lot of money on these things and it doesn't feel like it, but when you look at the whole picture, so I think even carving out some money, some fun money to go do those things that you are still enjoying those, but it's within reason. How important do you think it is to have an emergency fund? Um, I think it's the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And I was going to say, what guidelines should individuals follow when determine how much to really put aside for unexpected expenses? Yeah, I think it's the number one thing you should do with any kind of financial planning is have an emergency fund. And we've seen over the last decade, you know, multiple kind of crises, whether they're financial or whether they're health related. Um, happening that you you need to have a backup plan and you should because whether you've experienced yourself or you've seen it happen to other people it is really important to have this because we we don't you know it everything's unpredictable so how much you should have the, the kind of the general rules are if you are in a two income household and you work at different places or different industries then you you should have three months worth of your monthly spending in savings. If you both work at the same company or you work in the same industry, if there's a, you know, mass layoff in that industry or something happens, then we we err on the side of having 6 months. Um if you're self-employed and you own your own business and you're looking at business reserves and all of that right now, I would say at least 12 to 18 months because oh. 
Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we might see a slowdown and some business owners during these kind of slow periods may throw payroll on a line of credit you know, that they've done in the past where credit's going to be more difficult to access. Interest rates are going to be a lot higher. So those calculations are going to, you're going to have to consider them where I think people were just putting them on there before not having to think about it um, and creating, creating a plan to make sure that you have these kind of excess reserves. If you're in a single income household, then it's also six months. I would also pay attention to how, how big of an earner you are. If you're a really high income earner, Chances are you would not find a job with the same level of income and benefits within three months, right? You're if if you're coming on board and you're a really high income earner, there's going to be this dating period between you and your future employer. And you don't want to have to take a job that you don't necessarily want, or maybe you feel like I'm way overqualified for this because I don't have any cash on hand. So you can't have this kind of you have to cut the dating period with this company that you really want. And if they're saying, okay, we have to go through all of these layers and approvals before we can bring you on. And then you have to take a job quickly. They're going to, they're maybe going to question your loyalty to them. And then if you're saying, well, I just don't have any savings and I had to take that job. They're going to look at that as a reflection potentially of you as a leader as well. So if you are a higher income earner, um, I would err on the side of having more of a cushion room to do that. That's interesting. I, I can't remember where I read it, but I read somewhere that the average American, by the time it comes to retirement age, has less than a thousand bucks in savings. Yeah, I've read. I mean, it depends on where they're polling from. I've read some pretty uh, scary, scary stats as well. Um, but right now we're seeing, as we're seeing people retire around age 65, 66, um, only half of the people retiring will actually receive pension income. So while there's social security, um, we as a country really haven't seen the impact. What happens when people are responsible for saving for their own retirement? What is the impact? And we might not see that in terms of an effect on financial markets or the economy for maybe another 15 years until those people in their 60s or in their 80s and potentially have run out of money. Well, now what strain is that going to have on everyone else? Who's going to come in and take care of them? Do they have family? Those those kinds, we're really not going to know. Um, so it kind of makes this time a little bit even more upsetting that we're in this high inflation you know, um, high cost of living environment right now as people are approaching retirement without pension income. And for every year that the high inflation remains, that's having a devastating impact on cash reserves. Yeah, I mean, the, the nice part is interest rates are higher, so we're getting more bang for our buck. But if you're getting 4% in cash and inflation's at 6 or 7%, you're, you're still negative yeah. on your, you know, future purchasing power. So, Yeah. And in the UK, it's running currently just over 10%. So you can imagine the swing is pretty yeah, dense. I, I know every time I've been to London, I'm always, it's just this shock of how much things cost. And then you do the little trend, you know, the calculation in your head of converting it to a dollar and you're like, good gracious, how can people live here? And so it's, it's, that's, that's definitely tough especially if wages are not keeping up with that cost where, you know, what that is a really tough impact on the day-to-day -day living. 
I mean, there is an argument that if you keep putting up wages to keep up with inflation, you're going to keep driving up inflation. So when when does that vicious circle stop? Yeah, that's that's the tough part. Even here, you know, what we look at is money velocity is like, how quickly is money changing hands between when we get it? How quickly am I spending it? If I go to a store, how quickly is that shop owner spending it? And right now, it's just moving too fast. So the way to fix it is to have low or um, just a higher unemployment. And you think about that and you're like, oh, that sounds devastating that a bunch of people are going to have to lose their job or not be hired. And then what impact is that going to have? So it is this dance that the um, Fed and the you know governments have to do to see basically how are us, the humans going to behave and what impact is that going to have? So all more of the reason to focus on cash reserves, even if you have to forego saving for retirement right now, I would absolutely prioritize having cash on hand. Even in a higher inflation market. Yeah, because it, it depends on where your income's coming from. But in, in the US, you know, I think it's like over 70% of um, our economy is driven from consumer spending. So if you have the consumer stop spending money and you're going to have a ton of small businesses not receiving the same income that they were receiving and they have to pay their employees, like, yes, cash is king right now. Perfect. If you don't have reserves, I'm not saying pull everything in. in. <laughs> Let me be clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. What advice would you have for couples or families who are trying to create a shared financial plan while managing very different financial goals or priorities? To, I would have each person in the relationship really write down what are their goals for the next two years, the next five years, 10 plus years. And then I would have them each rank the priority Okay. and do the exercise separately because you don't want to feel pressure or influence from the other person. You really want to see where each individual is at. And then what does that look like together? Because it's going to be difficult if one person in the relationship has very different priorities than the other. That doesn't mean you can't do it, but you need to know where everybody's starting from. Um, if, you know, and especially too, if you have someone that really needs to travel or they really need to do these certain things and the other person is really focused on saving, that could be a point of contention in the relationship. But if it's all out on the table and you create plans around that and kind of, you know, I'm willing to meet you in the middle here, that's the first place to start is what are your priorities? What are your goals and how do they look together? That would be a great place to start. And it at least opens up a conversation about money that's a little bit lighter and a little bit more fun of looking at. Um, and then the, you can kind of make the conversation more more fun. No, thank you for that. I suppose finally, my final question to you would be, how can individuals stay on track with their financial plan? And how often should they really reassess and adjust their strategies to ensure that they're making progress towards their goals? Once you've created a financial plan, I think in the beginning, you'd want to look at it more frequently until you fully understand and have confidence in the plan. Um, after that, I would say at least quarterly, you want to do a general review 
if there's a significant change in your situation, let's say you are getting divorced or you're having a new baby or you're, you've had a change of income from your job, that you forget the timeline. You just want to revisit your plan and see how, how do things look based on this new information? Am I still invested the right way? Are things moving the direction I want to move? Um, but other than that, it should be at least quarterly. And then again, if you don't have a professional kind of looking after this for you, then whatever way works for you, if it's calendar reminders, whatever it is, if you invite yourself to a meeting, whatever you have to do to sit down and focus on it so you're not pushing it and kicking the can down the road. Um, so then you're only doing it once a year. So at least four times a year. Okay, perfect. Now, if people want to sort of find out a bit more about what you do and connect with you, how do they go and do that? My website is empoweredplanning.com. And then I put out a lot of short video content on Instagram that's educational, like three tips for you know business owners this year, things like that. My handle on Instagram is Shinabu Hindert. So you can find it that way. And you can, on the, my website, you can download a free chapter of the book. So you could always read it. I tried to make the book as fun as possible. It's not a textbook. Um, I wanted to make it a little bit lighter so you could actually uh, learn, learn as you go. It's not very often you hear someone say, I've tried to make a financial book as fun as possible. Yeah, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of jokes in there. <laughs> More reason to download a chapter and have a go. No, thank you so much. Well, if you enjoyed today's episode and you got great value, please share it with others so that they great so they they get the value out of it. Make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and please give us a like. A like will always help us with the algorithms. Thank you for being such an amazing guest. If anything has resonated today and you want a bit more information, head over to Booker.com and get in touch. And remember, failing to learn is learning to fail. Thank you for such an, being such an awesome guest. Appreciate it. Thank you.